0: section 34 of a half century of conflict this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a half century of conflict by francis parkman chapter 19 part 1 1745 Louisbourg besieged on board one of the transports was seth pomeroy gunsmith at northampton and now major of willard's massachusetts regiment he had a turn for soldiering and fought ten years later in the battle of lake george again twenty years later still when northampton was astir with rumors of war from boston he borrowed a neighbor's horse rode a hundred miles reached cambridge on the morning of the battle of bunker hill left his borrowed horse out of the way of harm walked over charleston neck then swept by the fire of the ships of war and reached the scene of action as the british were forming for the attack when israel putnam his comrade in the last war saw from the rebel breastwork the old man striding gun in hand up the hill he shouted by God Pomeroy you are here a cannon-shot would waken you out of your grave but Pomeroy with other landsmen crowded in the small and malodorous fishing vessels that were made to serve as transports was now in the gripe of the most unheroic of maladies a terrible northeast storm had fallen upon them and he says we lay rolling in the seas, with our sails furled among prodigious waves, sick day and night," writes the miserable gunsmith, so bad that I have not words to set it forth. The gale increased, and the fleet was scattered, there being, as a Massachusetts private soldier writes in his diary, a very fierce storm of snow. Some rain and very dangerous weather to be so nigh ye shore as we was, but we escaped the rocks, and that was all. On Friday, April the fifth, Pomeroy's vessel entered the harbor of Canseau, about fifty miles from Louisbourg. Here was the English fishing hamlet, the seizure of which by the French had first provoked the expedition. The place now quietly changed hands again. Sixty-eight of the transports lay here at anchor, and the rest came dropping in from day to day, sorely buffeted, but all safe. On Sunday there was a great concourse to hear Parson Moody preach an open-air sermon from the text, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, concerning which occasion the soldier diarist observes several sorts of businesses was going on some a uh, exercising some a uh, hearing preaching the attention of parson moody's listeners was in fact distracted by shouts of command and the awkward drill of squads of homespun soldiers on the adjacent pasture captain amy cutter with two companies was ordered to remain at kanso and defend it from farther vicissitudes to which end a blockhouse was also built and mounted with eight small cannon some of the armed vessels had been sent to cruise off louisbourg which they did to good purpose and presently brought in six french prizes with supplies for the fortress on the other hand, they brought the ominous news that Louisbourg and the adjoining bay were so blocked with ice that landing was impossible. This was a serious misfortune, involving long delay and perhaps ruin to the expedition, as the expected ships of war might arrive meanwhile from France. Indeed, they had already begun to appear. On Thursday the 18th, heavy cannonading was heard far out to sea, and again on Friday. The cannon, says Pomeroy, fired at a great rate till about two of the clock. It was the provincial cruisers attacking a French frigate, the Renommee, of thirty-six guns. As their united force was too much for her, she kept up a running fight, outsailed them, and escaped after a chase of more than thirty hours being as pomeroy quaintly observes a smart ship she carried dispatches to the governor of louisbourg and being unable to deliver them sailed back for france to report what she had seen on monday the 22nd a clear cold windy day a large ship under british colors sailed into the harbor and proved to be the frigate Eltham, escort to the annual mast fleet from New England. On orders from Commander Warren she had left her charge in waiting, and sailed for Canzo to join the expedition, bringing the unexpected and welcome news that Warren himself would soon follow. On the next day, to the delight of all, he appeared in the ship superb, of sixty guns accompanied by the Launston and the Mermaid, of forty guns each. Here was force enough to oppose any ships likely to come to the aid of Louisbourg, and Warren, after communicating with Pepperell, sailed to blockade the port, along with the provincial cruisers which by order of Shirley were placed under his command. The transports lay at Canzo nearly three weeks waiting for the ice to break up, the time was passed in drilling the raw soldiers and forming them into divisions of four and six hundred each, according to the directions of Shirley. At length, on Friday the 27th, they heard that Gabarus Bay was free from ice, and on the morning of the twenty-ninth, with the first fair wind, they sailed out of Canzo Harbour, expecting to reach Louisbourg at nine in the evening as prescribed in the governor's receipt for taking Louisbourg while the enemy were asleep. But a lull in the wind defeated this plan, and after sailing all day they found themselves becalmed towards night. It was not until the next morning that they could see the town. No very imposing spectacle, for the buildings, with a few exception, were small, and the massive ramparts that belted them round rose to no conspicuous height louisbourg stood on a tongue of land which lay between its harbour and the sea and the end of which was prolonged eastward by reefs and shoals that partly barred the entrance to the port leaving a navigable passage not half a mile wide this passage was commanded by a powerful battery called the island battery being upon a small rocky island at the west side of the channel and was also secured by another detached work called the grand or royal battery which stood on the shore of the harbour opposite the entrance and more than a mile from the town thus a hostile squadron trying to force its way in would receive a flank fire from the one battery and a front fire from the other the strongest line of defence of the fortress was drawn across the base of the tongue of land from the harbour on one side to the sea on the other a distance of about twelve hundred yards the ditch was eighty feet wide and from thirty to thirty-six feet deep and the rampart of earth faced with masonry was about sixty feet thick the glacis sloped down to a vast marsh which formed one of the best defences of the place. The fortress, without counting its outworks, had embrasures for 148 cannon, but the number in position was much less, and is variously stated. Pomeroy says that at the end of the siege a little above 90 were found, with a great number of swivels, others say 76, in the grand and island batteries there were sixty heavy pieces more against this formidable armament the assailants had brought thirty-four cannon and mortars of much inferior weight to be used in bombarding the fortress should they chance to fail of carrying it by surprise while the enemy were asleep apparently they distrusted the efficacy of their siege train though it was far stronger than shirley had at first thought sufficient for they brought with them good store of balls of forty-two pounds to be used in french cannon of that calibre which they expected to capture their own largest pieces being but twenty-two pounders according to the habitant de louisbourg the garrison consisted of five hundred and sixty regular troops of whom several companies were Swiss, besides some thirteen or fourteen hundred militia, inhabitants partly of the town, and partly of neighboring settlements. The regulars were in bad condition. About the preceding Christmas they had broken into mutiny, being discontented with their rations, and exasperated with getting no extra pay for work on the fortifications the affair was so serious that though order was restored some of the officers lost all confidence in the soldiers and this distrust proved most unfortunate during the siege the governor chevalier Du Chambon, successor of duquesne who had died in the autumn was not a man to grapple with a crisis being deficient in decision of character if not in capacity he expected an attack we were informed of the preparations from the first says the habitant de louisbourg some indians who had been to boston carried to canada the news of what was going on there but it was not believed and excited no alarm it was not so at louisbourg where says the french writer just quoted we lost precious moments in useless deliberations and resolutions, no sooner made than broken. Nothing to the purpose was done, so that we were as much taken by surprise as if the enemy had pounced upon us unawares. It was about the 25th of March when the garrison first saw the provincial cruisers hovering off the mouth of the harbour. They continued to do so at intervals, till daybreak of the thirtieth of april when the whole fleet of transports appeared standing towards flat point which projects into gabarus bay three miles west of the town on this duchambon sent Morpain, captain of a privateer or corsair to oppose the landing he had with him eighty men and was to be joined by forty more already on the watch near the supposed point of disembarkation. At the same time cannon were fired and alarm bells rung in Louisbourg to call in the militia of the neighborhood. Pepperrell managed the critical work of landing with creditable skill. The rocks and the surf were more dangerous than the enemy. Several boats filled with men rowed towards Flat Point, but on a signal from the flagship Shirley, rowed back again more pain flattering himself that his appearance had frightened them off being joined by several other boats the united party a hundred men in all pulled for another landing-place called freshwater cove or anse de la cormorandiere two miles further up garbarus bay more pain and his party ran to meet them but the boats were first in the race, and as soon as the New England men got ashore, they rushed upon the French, killed six of them, captured as many more, including an officer named Boularderie, and put the rest to flight, with the loss on their own side of two men slightly wounded. Further resistance to the landing was impossible, for a swarm of boats pushed against the rough and stony beach the men dashing through the surf till before night about two thousand were on shore the rest or about two thousand more landed at their leisure on the next day on the second of may vaughan led four hundred men to the hills near the town and saluted it with three cheers somewhat to the discomposure of the french Though they describe the unwelcome visitors as a disorderly crowd vaughan's next proceeding pleased them still less he marched behind the hills in rear of the grand battery to the northeast arm of the harbor where there were extensive magazines of naval stores these his men set on fire and the pitch tar and other combustibles made a prodigious smoke he was returning in the morning with a small party of followers behind the hills when coming opposite the grand battery and observing it from the ridge he saw neither flag on the flagstaff nor smoke from the barrack chimneys one of his party was a cape cod indian vaughan bribed him with a flask of brandy which he had in his pocket though as the clerical historian takes pains to assure us he never used it himself and the indian pretending to be drunk or as some say mad staggered towards the battery to reconnoitre all was quiet he clambered in at an embrasure and found the place empty the rest of the party followed and one of them william tufts of medford a boy of eighteen climbed the flagstaff holding in his teeth his red coat, which he made fast at the top, as a substitute for the British flag, a proceeding that drew upon him a volley of unsuccessful cannon-shot from the town batteries. Vaughan then sent this hasty note to Pepperell. May it please your honour to be informed that by the grace of God and the courage of thirteen men I entered the Royal Battery about nine o'clock, and am waiting for a reinforcement and a flag. Soon after, four boats filled with men approached from the town to reoccupy the battery, no doubt in order to save the munitions and stores and complete the destruction of the cannon. Vaughan and his thirteen men, standing on the open beach under the fire of the town and the island battery, plied the boats with musketry and kept them from landing, till Lieutenant-Colonel Bradstreet appeared with a reinforcement on which the French pulled back to Louisbourg. The English supposed that the French in the battery, when the clouds of smoke drifted over them from the burning storehouses, thought that they were to be attacked in force and abandoned their post in a panic. This was not the case. A detachment of the enemy, writes the habitant de Louisbourg, advanced to the neighborhood of the royal battery this was vaughan's four hundred on their way to burn the storehouses at once we were all seized with fright pursues this candid writer and on the instant it was proposed to abandon this magnificent battery which would have been our best defense if one had known how to use it Various councils were held in a tumultuous way. It would be hard to tell the reasons for such a strange proceeding. Not one shot had yet been fired at the battery, which the enemy could not take, except by making regular approaches, as if against the town itself, and by besieging it, so to speak, in form. Some persons remonstrated, but in vain and so a battery of thirty cannon which had cost the king immense sums was abandoned before it was attacked Chambon says that soon after the english landed he got a letter from thierry the captain in command of the royal battery advising him that the cannon should be spiked and the works blown up it was then according to the governor that the council was called and a unanimous vote passed to follow Thierry's advice, on the ground that the defences of the battery were in bad condition, and that the four hundred men posted there could not stand against three or four thousand. The engineer Verrier opposed the blowing up of the works, and they were therefore left untouched. Thierry and his garrison came off in boats after spiking the cannon in a hasty way, without stopping to knock off the trunnions or burn the carriages. They threw their loose gunpowder into the well, but left behind a good number of cannon cartridges, two hundred and eighty large bombshells and other ordnance stores, invaluable both to the enemy and to themselves. Brigadier Waldo was sent to occupy the battery with his regiment, and Major Seth Pomeroy, the gunsmith, with twenty soldier mechanics was set at drilling out the spiked touch-holes of the cannon these were twenty eight forty two pounders and two eighteen pounders several were ready for use the next morning and immediately opened on the town which writes a soldier in his diary damaged the houses and made the women cry the enemy says the habitant de louisbourg saluted us with our own cannon, and made a terrific fire, smashing everything within range. The English occupation of the Grand Battery may be called the decisive event of the siege. There seems no doubt that the French could have averted the disaster long enough to make it of little help to the invaders. The water-front of the Battery was impregnable. The rear defences consisted of a loopholed wall of masonry, with a ditch ten feet deep and twelve feet wide, and also a covered way and glacis, which General Walcott describes as unfinished. In this he mistook, they were not unfinished, but had been partly demolished, with a view to reconstruction. The rear wall was flanked by two towers, which says Duchambon, were demolished, but General Walcott declares that swivels were still mounted on them, and he adds that two hundred men might hold the battery against five thousand without cannon. The English landed their cannon near Flat Point, and before they could be turned against the grand battery, they must be dragged four miles over hills and rocks, through spongy marshes and jungles of matted evergreens. This would have required a week or more, the alternative was an escalade in which the undisciplined assailants would no doubt have met a bloody rebuff thus this grand battery which says walcott is in fact a fort might at least have been held long enough to save the munitions and stores and effectually disable the cannon which supplied the english with the only artillery they had competent to the work before them the hasty abandonment of this important post was not Duchambon's only blunder, but it was the worst of them all End of section thirty four